Okay, hi, this is the podcast for week nine. Um, and as with this week and all the other weeks in this unit, we have two different readings. The first is another chapter from the Misinformation Age uh, by Kaylin O'Connor and James Weatherall. And the second is two chapters from Richard Seymour's The Twittering Machine. Um, because, and what connects these different readings for this entire section or unit is they're all dealing with, in some sense, the same problem, uh, largely understood as the sort of particular challenges of the increasingly digitally networked public sphere um, and its ability to propagate um, misinformation and distortion, although they look at it from very different perspectives. So first I want to talk about the chapter, um, which is called Polarization in Conformity from uh, the O'Connor and Weatherall book. Um, and so last time, we didn't really talk about this, but they kind of remind us this is what they were talking about. They uh, gave us a kind of way of understanding belief, a model, as they put it, uh, uh, called Bayes' rule. And that basically meant that... Um, by and large, people uh, should or do uh, tailor their beliefs to the probabilities uh, regarding the knowledge they have of the world. So things that happen a lot, often, become pretty much certain in the sense that I'm, you know, uh, even though we can't really be totally, completely certain, um, you know, the sun rises every morning, um, but there's a day will come when it's not going to rise, but we treat that as if it's fairly certain. In other things, we treat um, as fairly unlikely, right? Um, and we do that based on our sense of the probability of them having happened and happening again, and this kind of structures our our beliefs about the world. So we tend to treat things that happened frequently as fairly certain and things that happen infrequently as, as, as um, fairly contingent. And if we didn't, we'd be in a strange world. Like imagine what would happen if, you know, say some odd thing happens, like you go hiking in the woods and you get attacked by a rabid fox, for example. And what if you thought that you were always going to be attacked by a rabid fox every time you went out into the woods? It would really probably wouldn't go into the woods anymore. It would really fundamentally alter your 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 actions. Um, but by and large, we don't do that. We tend to treat things that happen uh, based on our knowledge of how likely they are. Now, there are two things about this that that need to be said. One is kind of a, an aside, but I do think is important. Um, and that is, as they point out, that we're more likely to adjust our belief to the world around us if there is some kind of effect or ramification of it. Um, so say, for example, belief in rabid foxes would have ramifications in terms of how I conduct myself outside. Um, but there are other things for which there's almost no... Uh, ramification for the belief like say for example i could believe that we live on a flat earth um that's at the center of the universe um and that really isn't going to do much to change my 
um, actions, um, unless I'm taking a lengthy sea voyage and say, for example, deciding to, to, you know, arrive in, um, in Italy by way of a trip around, uh, you know, to Japan, Australia, India, South Africa, um, and so on, um, it's not really going to make much of a difference. Um, so there are some beliefs that, that because they, they don't really bear on our actions, the, the tendency to correct those erroneous beliefs is, is pretty non-existent. Um, but the other, and this is really what the chapter is about, the other kind of limitation of this Bayes rule idea of understanding belief based on the probability of things to happen is it takes as its model a purely individualistic uh, individual who is, who is on their own assessing whether or not they should believe X or Y. And that overlooks a fundamental and important thing. And that has to do with the fact that by and large, our beliefs are profoundly social, shaped by who we um, spend time with and so on, right? So and in both senses of the term, right, as, as has been demonstrated in that people tend to, uh, uh, and there's a little bit of a chicken and egg problem here, you know, do people uh, spend time with people who have the same beliefs or do people adopt the beliefs to the people they spend their time with? But by and large, there's a sort of conformity uh, uh, to people and their beliefs. Um, and to some extent, and this is the, the, one of the main issues, I mean, they give multiple different stories about this, uh, stories about scientific discoveries and how these scientific discoveries, um, either met resistance or acceptance based on the social context in which they take place. Um, from, you know, the discovery of mercury poisoning from fish, fish consumption to the, um, discovery of the role of bacteriological pathogens in, uh, creating illnesses. Um, and sometimes Sometimes the social group is more or less conducive to changing the belief, as, as they point out when it comes to the story of, uh, of Samuel Weiss, um, the physician who noticed that it was going from inspecting cadavers to performing births and other surgeries that was leading to death. Um, there was a resistance to accept this pretty verifiable belief. And as he's pointed out, one that fits within the community's own self-definition. Doctors want to help people and not kill people. Um, but the thing that paved the way for the resistance to it was the fact that it, in order for people, the doctors, to accept this, they would have to accept something, I guess, somewhat unpleasant about themselves, that their hands were dirty. And that what they really needed to do was wash their hands between inspecting cadavers and performing 
surgeries on living human beings. And the resistance to it really came down to the fact that no one in the group wanted to admit that they had poor hygiene. So the community's own self-definition is sometimes integral to how how the group defines itself. And as as O'Connor Weather I'll point out, sometimes sometimes the um, the question is very much a question of the community's own self-definition in terms of morality. Um, and this is they give the example of the abortion debate. Although, I mean, they, they said by and large the abortion debate isn't a debate about the status of fetuses and so on. It's more about the question of moral and values in terms of, um, of, of potential human life versus living um, human beings and their, and, their, and their rights and interests. Although I do think there is a sense in which there is a, a scientific dimension to it um, uh, versus, say, on the other extreme is the climate change debate, which is to some extent not really about morals and values, uh, but really about scientific facts in terms of is human activity causing climate change and so on. Although I think um, I think in my view, it's more accurate to say that that sometimes the emphasis is really on um, shared values and morality that 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 dictate how the debate takes place and sometimes the emphasis is on 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 questions about what are the relevant facts of the matter i don't think um because both the examples they give abortion and climate change um even though you could say in one context it's very much about the the, the moral questions that define different communities. And in the other case, it's more about the scientific questions. There is a connection between the moral and the scientific in both, uh, or, or not a connection, but there's a sense in which um, there's a scientific debate within the abortion and anti-abortion community about the status of personhood, about when a fetus be, is capable of feeling, thinking enough for it to qualify for consideration so there's a scientific debate there and similarly i think with the the climate change debate even though it's often in the in the back seat there is a a moral and political question about values because to some extent you know if 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 climate change is true if human activity uh in terms of the burning of fossil fuels is contributing to the warming of the pl planet then we should do something to stop it uh, if it's not true, then we have nothing to worry about. We can go on, you know, doing whatever we're doing, going on cruises, driving our big cars around, and so on and so forth. Um, uh, so in each one, there's a there's a shift of emphasis, but there are the communities defined by the facts and communities defined by their values. But so um, I'm not going to go through all the various different examples, but I do want to begin to pose a kind of problem from from the reading. And, and this is from two different passages. The first is on page 63. Um, uh, I'll, I'll start with um, page 62. Um, 
As we are the introduction, the social spread of knowledge is a double-edged sword. It gives us remarkable capabilities as a species to develop sophisticated knowledge about the world, but it also opens the door to the spread of false belief. We see this in the models as well, especially when scientists tackle hard problems, they can come to agree on the working on the wrong thing. This happens when a few scientists get a string of misleading results and share them with their colleagues. Scientists who might have been on track to believe the truth thing can be derailed by their peers' misleading evidence. The example they give is, is um, how the role of bacteria in ulcers was kind of thrown out of whack because of some results that suggested that bacteria couldn't survive in the stomach because of the the the, the acid um, and so to some extent um, there was some examination of the role of bacteria in creating ulcers but then this new uh, consensus emerged about acid and acid being the cause and 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 eliminating bacteria as a cause and so on so um, to some extent um, the sharing of knowledge can, especially when it's new inquiry and people are very tentatively beginning to develop a new hypothesis, that a strong sense of a consensus can destroy the hypothesis. Right? As they, um, as they go on to say on page sixty-three, it's worth taking a moment to let this sink in. Usually, when scientists behave rationally but gather uncertain data, sharing evidence helps the whole group get the right belief, even persuading those who are initially skeptical. But sometimes this process backfires and the communication between scientists actually leads to consensus around a false belief. Remember the vegetable lamb without communication among learned scholars is bizarre belief would not have gone anywhere. Um, and they go on to say, the trade-off where connections propagate true beliefs, but also open channels for spread of misleading evidence, means that sometimes it's actually better for a group of scientists to communicate less, especially when they work on a hard problem. This phenomenon in which scientists improve their beliefs by failing to communicate is known as the Zolman effect after Kevin Zolman who discovered it. If everybody shares evidence, a chance string of bad data can persuade the entire group to abandon the correct theory. But in a group where everyone where not everyone listens to everyone else, pockets of scientists can be protected from this leading data and continue to gather evidence on a true belief that eventually persuades the rest of the community. Right? So sometimes uh, cutting off communication is the best thing to do um, because if you're beginning to develop a new idea, the last thing you want to do is, uh, especially as this new idea, right? because all evidence is especially at the beginning, right? all evidence is, is uh, subject to interpretation. Um, no evidence for any theory or understanding can ever be totally um, uh, 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 produce total complete conviction. It's always more or less probable. Um, and so at moments when uh, uh, one is trying to uh, out a different understanding of things. Those are moments when you probably shouldn't listen to what everyone else has to say. Um, but the flip side of this, this is on page 82. They write, suppose you have a group of people who are trying to make a judgment about something where there are two possible answers. Only one of them is correct. If each person is individually more likely than not to get the correct answer, the probability that the whole group will get the right answer by, by voting increases as you add more and more voters. 
This suggests that there are cases when it is actually a good idea to accept your own failability and go with the majority opinion. By aggregating many fail voices, you increase the chances of getting the right answer. Those who have watched the game show Who Wants to Be a Millionaire will be familiar with this effect. Contestants who poll the audience for the answer to a question can expect correct feedback 91% of the time compared with those who ask a single friend to get the right answer 65% of the time. So here is the, the, the bind or the problem, right? Sometimes the best thing to do is to cut yourself off from communication and begin to explore evidence or an idea by yourself. And this can be in doing scientific research. This can even be, you know, to take a classroom example in developing your own idea for a class paper, right? There's definitely a lot to be said about um, participating sort of in discussion posts, putting your ideas out there and talking with, with friends about what you're thinking about and the ability to... Um, to uh, uh, work out your ideas in, in, in public. Um, but there's a point, probably somewhere along the way, where it makes sense to um, stop talking about it and begin to work out your own idea. And I think this is especially true when an idea is new. If you begin to think of a new angle or a new approach or a new way of looking at things, when it's very new and very tentative, um, in some sense, the last thing you want to do at those moment at those moments is put those ideas out there uh, because it may need time to develop, and you need to may need to cut yourself off from communication. So there are times when the best thing one can do to develop one's own understanding of the world is to cut oneself off from uh, communication with others. But then the flip side is there are times when um, given the fallibility, the limitations of our own knowledge and understanding about the world, there are times when the best thing we could do for our um, beliefs and understanding is to uh, just, you know, um, pull the audience, as they say, in terms of go with the fact that um, if we all are uh, limited and what we know and can understand, then sometimes the best thing to do is uh, figure out that, you know, uh, the more other people have thought about this, the more other people sort of know about this, um, it's better to go with the, with the majority. So... Um, you know, part of the problem and part of what what uh, what O'Connor and Weatherall are trying to sort out is that the connection between belief or knowledge about the world and um, our existence as social beings relating to others, that sometimes our social existence is the thing which uh, uh, thwarts or distorts our knowledge about the world as we as we conform to groups around us. And sometimes it is only in many different minds, many different people looking at the same thing that we can arrive at anything 
that even resembles the truth. So, um, so the question, first question for this week is of the different um, stories and histories they recount um, of scientific knowledge and its relationship to the scientific community, which to you best illustrates this problem of the relation between arriving at correct beliefs about the world and existing within uh, social or, com or, or communities, um, which illustrates to you the best a way of kind of resolving this problem or of addressing this problem or illustrating this problem of the connection between what we know about the world and how we interact with others socially. So that's the first question from this reading. And then I'll take a little break and then we'll turn to the Seymour reading. Okay. So one of the reasons that I wanted to um, conduct this section of the class by having one book to to sort of uh, uh, return to the misinformation age um, and add to it some other other readings is that you know O'Connor and, and Weatherall are I think doing their best. They're very concerned as a lot of people are with the spread of false beliefs and they're trying to address this problem from the perspective that they understand as philosophers trained in things like logic and the philosophy of science. Um, but there are definitely other ways to look at the same fundamental problem. So last time we talked about the, the other way we looked at was the study of agnotology or the a study of how it is that false beliefs are created and spread. Um, uh, today, we're adding to the misinformation age two chapters from Richard Seymour's book, which came out in 2019, called The Twittering Machine. And Seymour is a, 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 a writer about politics and society from the UK. Um, uh, and uh, because of that, I think um, he is very interested in looking specifically at, at social media and its effects on society. Um, and so Seymour's book has a, a kind of interesting structure. Um, we read for it two, chapters three and four. We are all celebrities. Um, uh, and we are all trolls. And just, just so you know, the entire book is structured um, around this. Uh, every chapter has a name that's a, a kind of claim that includes us all. Um, uh, he has chapters like we are all addicts, we are all liars, and so on. Now, of course, this is, I think, a, a, an interesting way to structure a book. And I think one of the things that it uh, challenges is our tendency when it comes to something like social media to consider ourselves 
personally to be exceptions to a general social problem, right? So let's let's look at both of the the claims that, or both of the figures that he kind of gives us to talk about this week: the celebrity and the troll, right? By celebrity, he means, um, well, let's let's get a little more more into that. What does he mean when he says we're all celebrities? Um, as he says on page um, 84, after Roman numeral three, um, the split between private and public selves, characteristic of celebrity, is an increasingly ordinary experience of social industry users. A generation is growing up with publicity not as a remote dream, but as a coercive norm. Donna Freitas' research into young social industry users finds them tyrannicized by their obsession with likes and comparison with others. Under constant surveillance, they must give the impression of living their best life, of being blissful, enraptured, even inspiring. It is hard work with diminishing returns. It generates the feeling of being alone among fakes, a desperate situation. If celebrities often spiral into public degrades of self-degradation. Chris Rojek suggests it is to alert the public to the horror, shame, and erroaching helplessness of the private self faced with its metastasizing public arrival. So, first of all, when he says we're all celebrities, part of what he's drawing attention to is the fact that there are things that um, for a long time remained entirely in the hands of celebrities have been extended to everyone, right? So say, for example, um, the fact that for a long time, you know, celebrities, um, when they had their photo shoots or whatever, they could um, make sure to create and uh, uh, propagate the kind of image that they wanted, right? So they would select that a lot of pictures would be taken. They would select those pictures. Those pictures would be published in profiles of them in you know, magazines like People or whatever. Um, and for a long time, the only people who could do that were famous people. Right? Most of us, we just took pictures and we had pictures and you know, private albums and whatever. Occasionally, we might show up in a newspaper article. But by and large, um, uh, our pictures were primarily private. And we didn't have this ability to ask ourselves this question, um, you know, which we do now whenever we post a picture onto any kind of social media, does this, is this the image I want people to see, right? So this process of, of selecting and um, uh, uh, sharing images has become disseminated, right? I mean, you go out in public, and you know you you see people at a at a restaurant or whatever they take a picture together they all kind of pass it around and suddenly they start chiming oh put it up put it up put it up and and it's up and it's part of the public presentation whereas you know you could also opt out of pictures right you can untag yourself and there's a whole kind of thing about this this maintenance of the image of yourself which used to be something that celebrities had staffs and so on to do but uh we all can do now. Um, and there's a, a kind of reward for this. I mean, as, C, as Seymour mentions, at the extreme end of this, right, once you get enough followers on Instagram, you can become an influencer, you can be offered 
tie-ins with products and money or, 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 or clothes or whatever else the case may be to um, share your image. Um, uh, but most of us, most of us deal with a, a, a smaller, less material payoff, the payoff of seeing um, likes, shares, etc. So um, celebrity, as he understands it, is a particular presentation of the self. Um, and it, it's caught in a, in, a, in a particular kind of bind, because on the one hand, there is an attempt to select, censor, curate, and cultivate that presentation of self. Or you don't want pictures where you look terrible going up. Or you don't want, you know, some people even like you hear this about people who like put up a tweet about a funny comment they make. It gets no likes and they take it down rather than have it sort of up there on Twitter as a joke no one thought was funny or an observation no one thought was interesting and so on. So you can cultivate not just physical appearance, but intellectual comedic appearance and so on. Um, so on the one hand, there's this attention to cultivating, to creating the right kind of image. Uh, but on the other hand, there's also this concern with authenticity, right? Um, I mean, part of the appeal of, say, social media influencers over commercials is that commercials seem fake, right? Um, buying some clothing because someone on social media is wearing it seems real because they're actually wearing it and so on and so forth. So there's these two very opposed demands on the one hand the demand to cultivate and create an image on the other hand a demand to make sure that image is authentic it's hard for things to be both to be both authentic and cultivated which is where a lot of these crises come from um so that's a celebrity the second figure I want to talk about is the troll. And in some sense, the troll is the exact opposite of the celebrity. Right? Whereas the, the celebrity wants to be seen and known as uh, an individual, the troll gets their strength from uh, uh, their ability to remain anonymous. Right? As the saying goes, none of us is cruel as all of us. That there's a certain way in which um, part of what we understand is trolling is the way people can get be whipped up into um, uh, doing something by other people being around them and so on. And the other thing about uh, trolling um, it's not just the opposite in the sense that it's anonymous rather than individuated. Um, to some extent, trolling is, as Richard Seymour puts it, um, detachment as a kind of survival, right? Part of trolling, especially some of the cruel examples he mentions, where people troll someone, for example, for um, uh, who has recently lost a loved one, and try and get a rise out of someone to create pain and, and anger and frustration for the for the lulls, as they say, that part of what 
defines trolling is a kind of detachment as a survival strategy, he puts it. The sense that a troll doesn't want to um, show any sympathy, empathy, any kind of con- any kind of sense of a connection with other people or a concern about decency or anything else. To, to be a troll is to find everything potentially funny. To, and including death, loss, pain, etc., um, and to find the 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 number one thing is to get some kind of reaction, and that kind of brings the celebrity and the troll together, right? They're both looking for a reaction. The thing that, even though they do it in very different ways, the thing that a celebrity can't stand is no likes, no shares, whatever. And the same thing, a troll that got no reaction um, would. Uh, uh, be dissatisfied, which is why people try this strategy. Sometimes, you know, quote unquote, don't feed the trolls, like don't engage and so on. Um, so I want to go back to, for the question for this section, I want to go back to the first question that I, that I raised in the sense that I think a lot of people, when they read Seymour's book, they sort of react to the we are all. In the sense that people will say, yeah, I know people do this, right? And, but not me. I think that, you know, social media is definitely one of those places where people are always willing to talk about a friend. Oh, yeah, I have this friend who's always posting, she's always doing this, so on and so forth. Or I have this friend who's always trolling and so on and so forth. And I'm not asking you to to confess being a celebrity or being a troll. Um... But I am asking you to take Seymour's proposition seriously, that the things he's describing are not just isolated, deviant aspects, but are, to some extent, pervasive aspects of our existing social reality. And part of that, I think, this goes back to to thinking about Tufekci's book as well, um, from a few weeks ago, um, part of this stems from the idea that 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 Seymour makes clear that that even though he identifies the celebrity and the troll with particular online practices, and they're made possible by social media. Right? Social media has made it possible uh, both for someone who is you know not at all famous to get their fifteen minutes of fame to go viral, to become shareable, and so on and so forth. And social media has made it possible, on the opposite extreme, for people to anonymously harass and heckle other human beings who they don't know. These two things were relatively difficult to do um, before the age of social media. But at the same time, Seymour also connects both the celebrity um, and the troll to things that go beyond social media, to um, aspects of society, to behaviors within society. So I guess part of 
the second question, and you can pick either the celebrity or the troll, um, you know, is how does Seymour claim this is to some extent a broad social tendency, which is not to say that everyone does it in the exact same way, right? We all so we all have a little bit of the celebrity in us and we all have a little bit of the troll in us. Um, but how does Seymour argue this these tendencies, either the celebrity or the troll, are broad tendencies? And, and in doing so, how does he connect the online world to the offline world? Because like, that's an enduring question. Um, because I think that, that Tufetchi really pointed this out, that there are two you know, real fallacies one is the fallacy of a kind of digital a dualism where you act like the online world has nothing to do with the face-to-face -face world. Um, and the other is a kind of, you know, an overemphasis on the on online world or separating the online world and thinking that all these problems that are manifest online only exist because of social media and have nothing to do with other social, economic, political, psychological aspects. So uh, the question then to sum it up briefly is take the troll, the celebrity, show how it, and show how it is seen as, or what, 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 what does Seymour say about how it's pervasive? Um, and then how does he show that his pervasiveness is connected to not just the online world, but the offline world of society? Um, and, and then we can talk about, you know, what do you find convincing or interesting about this? But, but definitely do those first two steps. Thanks. That's all for this week.